So welcome to From the Red House podcast. This is the beginning of season three of this podcast series, and I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by the Reverend Richard Coles, who is a Church of England priest and also a very well-known broadcaster, writer, and former pop star as well. Uh, So you've got one of the most eclectic CVs of anyone I've ever spoken to. Um, And I wasn't sure uh, whether to introduce you in in what order to put those things in. (laughs) I don't know whether you have a preference yourself. There's no way of doing it which doesn't sound like the work of Walter Mitty. (laughs) If I were to see my own CV, I would throw it into the bin as the work of a fantasist, obviously. Um, uh, So I don't know, could you pick pick whichever route you like? Okay. (laughs) Well, I think I'm sort of familiar with you in, in... in, in all capacities, really, because having read your your memoir, uh, Fathomless Riches, which I thoroughly enjoyed, um, so which which I found uh, explored both of those aspects with with great thoroughness and honesty, um, and takes you on that process of actually transitioning between all those different roles in, into the others. So it makes it it does make it understandable, if unusual. Well, it's because it never. I mean, your life is your life, isn't it? It's just one day after another, and you never really. It's only when I've called upon to explain it that it does seem a bit odd although I'm much more struck now by the sort of continuities rather than the discontinuities in it a lot well, of that's to do with music of course well that's that's primarily why I'm um, just I'm really happy to speak to you because you you speak so well about music and you are a musician and music has clearly been of immense importance um and so that link, as you say, between the aspects of your life has been a thread running through. But also even before you were any of these things professionally, as a child, you were clearly very responsive to music. Yes, I was. Embarrassingly so. When I was a very little boy, music kind of shot into my emotional system uh, as it formed with extraordinary force. So if, if music was happy, I would dance around on my chubby little legs, apparently. And if music was sad, I would cry and bawl. So I, I was, was deeply touched by music. Um, I kind of thought everybody was, actually. And, and, I, and, I, and I, from a very early age, I was listening to music um, a lot. Um, it was only when I got a bit older that I realised that it was not what most people were doing, really. And also, I, always, I was at odds with my peers because from, from before prep school, I was listening to classical music. Well, I didn't discriminate between classical music and any other kind of music. I didn't realise that was a discrimination to be made. It was only when I was a bit older and all my friends were listening to ghastly prog rock and I was kind of listening to Haydn that I realised um, that I was on a different track in some ways. That's that's really interesting because I think, do you think that, that when adolescence hits, or possibly even earlier, that music becomes much more tied to identity? Yes, I think as you, because you... You, you can begin to work out who you are to define or to you imagine that you're defining yourself it's not always not always the author of such things and I think particularly in the post-war period where popular music has been such a powerful way of uh, aligning yourself with a particular tribe or demographic then even more so and I was you know there's sometimes like on television there's some kind of slightly strange child wearing a bow tie who uh, seems who sort of drinks tea out of a china cup and um, speaks of the kind of novels of Ford Maddox Ford and things I was that child um, <laughs> and was listening to music of I mean I was sort of I was very I suppose precocious I mean I wasn't very good at it but I I I, I was sort of fascinated in it and it I grew up in Kettering you see and Kettering fine place though it is was not rich 
in cultural activity, I think it'd be fair to say. Mm -hmm. So I had to kind of find my way there, but my lifesaver was this, there was this series called Lives of the Great Composers or something, and it came, there was a 10-inch record in a glossy magazine that arrived by post. And so that would kind of wing its way through the post to Kettering, and I would uh, open, tear it open with my eager little hands, and that was my introduction to Mozart, Beethoven, Haydn, Tchaikovsky, Bach, and I, I played those records to death. And, um, and that was my way in. Is that music, those composers you still listen to now? Yes. Hmm. I mean, to give you an idea of how this kind of worked, there was um, a wonderful recording of the Bach um, D minor violin partita, and I loved the Chacon so much. And I was learning the violin, I started learning the violin when I was very young, about six, I think. And um, the thing is, I was more interested in being a great violinist than I was in learning to play the violin. So we had a gardener called Mr. Wattam, who was a very nice, patient man. And I used to stand in my bedroom window holding up my tiny fiddle, and I would wrap a handkerchief around the strings, put on the record of whoever it was playing the Bach Chacon, and then stand in the window, miming to it in the hope that Mr. Wattam would marvel at my uh, prodigious nature. And Mr. Wattam was unbothered by it. Though. Oh, what a shame. So your, your earliest audience there was didn't, didn't appreciate the, the spectacle you were putting on. Well, it's interesting because it all began with my grandfather, who was a pianist, and um, he had a grand piano, which seemed to be a lovely thing. And uh, it was like a little kind of, of boat, a little sort of vessel of culture in the kind of uncultural environment mm. of, of Kettering. So I used to, he had this, it was a grand piano with a sort of shawl over it, you know, kind of thing, and a silver bowl full of roses and family photographs. And he used to play what I realise now was smutty songs, although I didn't realise they were at the time. And I think he was very much a sort of pub pianist, or kind of slightly up from a pub pianist, snug pianist perhaps. And, uh, and he sort of cheated his way through performance, lots of pedal and lots of banging around. And what he was really after was the kind of approbation of his peers and ribald laughter, and I thought, well, I'll have some of that, please. <laughs> so the, um, the tying then, perhaps quite an early age, the, the fact of music and the emotional response that you would have to it with that it comes with a performative quality that gets you attention, I guess. Yeah, I mean, essentially there's, there's, there's two, I suppose you might say that it, the, the, the two sort of, the, the Apollonian and the Dionysian within me were vying there. I mean, I also had a great aunt Sheila, who was a professional violinist, who was a wonderful musician, and uh, <coughs> was, was entirely kind of rigorous and conservatoire trained. And so she um, was the corrective to my grandfather's pomp and circumstance, if I can put it that way. And she introduced me to lots of music, and she was an extraordinary woman. She wore jodhpurs and smoked a pipe and lived with a rather fey uh, lady called Elspeth in Notting Hill. But um, when Elspeth died, she retired up to where I was growing up when I was about 13, 14, and she used to let me smoke, which was a major plus. Wow. So I used to go around to her cottage and she would just play me lots of music, and then she died of lung cancer, having got into a fight with a policeman over a speeding offence. And um, left me all her miniature scores, which I still have now. She she was the reason why I took up the violin. I know she um, played for... I think she played in the first performance of, a, of um, Serenade to Music, or one of them, because she's got a score, which was signed by Adrian Bolt, I think. Mm. And, and I remember going to see her at the Albert Hall. I remember seeing her at her desk in the fiddles and being rather impressed. Wow. 
So you you took up the violin and you also later on, because I've heard you on, on your communard albums playing the piano. Um, well, piano came first, actually. Piano was first. Fiddle came second. And piano was always, and still is, my the instrument I'm built for, really. Mm-hmm. And also saxophone as well? So that came later. I was um, I was run over when I was eighteen, and with the uh, I got compensation, criminal injuries compensation, and with that I bought a saxophone. And funny enough, I started making a living as a musician playing the saxophone, although I was a bloody awful <laughs> saxophonist. But I I played the soprano because I loved the music. I loved Sidney Bechet, mm. and uh, that was an unusual taste again for someone aged eighteen. But I did, and so I bought a soprano saxophone and started playing that. And there weren't many people playing soprano then. So it had a sort of novelty value, which I suppose got me some mm-hmm. jobs. I was a better <laughs> pianist, though, and I did do a bit of job. I did a bit of work playing the piano. I played the piano for when I first came to London for um, theatre music shows, did a bit of rehearsal piano, that mm. sort of thing. I used to sometimes accompany people auditioning for parts in musical theatre. They would give me something in E-flat and say they wanted it in B, and I'd just play it in E-flat anyway, and nobody ever noticed. <laughs> That's... <laughs> That's terrific. Um, you read music then, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'm a better... It's yeah. an interesting one, again, sort of opposites vying with each other, because when I'm playing music from the kind of art repertoire, um, I play with the music in front of me. I'm a reasonably good sight reader. and But when I'm playing in pop music or in an ensemble, playing in a band, I play in a completely different way. So I never have music then, and it's all in my head and in my fingers. But when I... St- I can only really do one at a time. When I stopped playing pop music, when I got back, I started playing um, 48 or the dozen of the 48 I can play to try to sort of get some sort of technique back or a different mm. way of wiring the circuitry. A lot of it is to do with circuitry, isn't it? I think that what music can do to the brain is demonstrably powerful, isn't it? I mean, people sort of wire people's brains up while they're playing music and all the different synapses and everything's firing at once, aren't they? Yeah, and also I think the music, particularly the music which most charms you when mm. you're young, is very powerful. I mean, mm. the music of Britain, I discovered the music of Britain when I was about, well, it was the young person's introduction to the orchestra, actually, like mm. so many. And I absolutely loved it and made my way into Britain before I was an age where I knew, where I could tell the difference between, where it didn't seem kind of difficult. Um, mm. I don't find Britain's music particularly difficult, but I, I didn't then talk because I didn't know what difficult music was. There was just music, mm. and and I'm very. It's not just music, but also around the same time I started reading. No, a bit later on, I started reading the poems of Philip Larkin, which were put into my hand by an English teacher at school when I was about fifteen, I think. Mm. And now I, I sometimes write, and I, it's like a sort of parody of Larkin sometimes because it's just impressed me so powerfully, and same with. I was listening to a record I made with the Communards um, a while ago, and I'd done a string arrangement for it, and I thought, that sounds familiar. Then I realised it was from The Magic Flute. Mm. I just nicked it a bit mm. from The Magic Flute. Or Marriage of Figure, I can't remember, but it was Mozart. Gosh. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, I love to hear uh, when people say that, and it's interesting that, that when you're young, as you say, you don't differentiate between what you think you're supposed to find hard or what's supposed to be good or what isn't or what people might judge you on liking it's just all it's all one and there's something there's a, it's a shame I think that that door seems to close as people get older I wonder what it is I mean mm. when I got to sort of teenagehood I like so many I kind of was fell in love with the romantic repertoire I was listening to I mean Tchaikovsky I thought was 
uh, the bee's knees. I mean, I love Tchaikovsky now after a long period of not particularly liking Tchaikovsky because you repudiate the loves of your youth, perhaps. But, but I think that kind of dragged me into a harmonic world that m- made me understand that... I mean, it, I had to fight after that to get to kind of Berg or Webern or, mm. or Stravinsky even. Whereas now I don't... I can quite happily... It's the last barrier I felt I jumped in that respect was Janacek because lots of people I knew and, and respected would rave about Janacek. I just, I just didn't get it at all. And then one day I did. And now mm. I adore the music of Janacek and can't think why it took me so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, just what you were saying about the music when you're young really gets you and continues to get you. There's something called, por- someone used the phrase portal theory. Mm. Um, I heard this on um, the Kermode and Mayo film review programme <laughs> as it happens, but they were digressing as they often do into other areas. And it was on that the, when you're a teenager or you're just an adolescence, that there's a kind of very plastic um, openness in your brain that things get in and then they just take root forever I'm sure um, that's right. Yeah, and actually that's why if you listen to a song that you heard when you were a teenager or music, that it, 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 it impacts you in, in a remarkable level. And also that it's why, you know, it's why, I'm a, it's why I'm a priest today. It's because I was a chorister when I was eight. Mm. I mean, it's slightly simplifying it. There are other things too. But, but essentially, I was utterly kind of steeped, marinated in the Anglican choral tradition because I was a boy chorister, mm. like so many people who go on to have careers in music and indeed the church in England so uh, without realising and I certainly didn't think I was being formed in any way doctrinally um, or in terms of a sort of vocation but I, but I was and it's funny now I hear I heard um, Thou Visitest the Earth an anthem, Maurice Green, 18th century I think and it was an anthem I sang when I was a little boy and well 50 years ago and it had a nice solo in it, which I remember it, because I um, greedily grabbed the solo away from Porky Hamblin, who was after it too, that's another story. Um, but I heard it the other day, and it's something just so... F- it took me right back to being eight or nine. I was mm. a bit older if I was doing the solo. Um, and we say in the Church of England, Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, that what we believe is formed by how we pray. And it's true, so much of the, of the reason why I'm Church of England and not anything else, and I was a Roman Catholic for 10 years, is to do with the music. You know, I missed the hymns. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just about missing the hymns, it's about the hymns encoding more than, you know, they're more than the sum of their parts. Mm-hmm. So the music actually, music is the worship in the Anglican tradition? I think the way, the, the noises we make in church especially noises that are arranged in musical patterns, tell you about more than music. Mm-hmm. They, they like the buildings in that sense. You know, in Anglican parish church, I'm looking at mine now. Um, it, it's not just an arrangement of uh, shapes and or, you know, kind of light flowing through space. It is a representation in three dimensions of the ineffable mystery of faith and mm-hmm. I think that's probably true with the Anglican choral tradition too and so if you get that all of a sudden it takes you into a place you might otherwise not have gone mm-hmm. yes that's remarkable I, I was very moved by that exploration in your in your book um, all, I mean in, in juxtaposition with the the life you're leading before where you seem to be searching for something that you couldn't quite find or you weren't quite ready to allow yeah I mean, I think there are 
I mean, I see it all the time now. I mean, I've churches often visited by people who I just encounter there. And I just recognise in them something I recognise in myself mm-hmm. back then, which was there are certain questions that you end up asking which belong in a particular place. And it might be a church or a cathedral or a synagogue or a temple or a mosque. But there are certain kinds of inquiries that people have done uh, in faith that uh, can't really be conducted anywhere else. I mean, we try, I'm often struck by how in a sort of secular age, and most of my friends who are not religious at all would describe themselves as atheists, but how kind of there's a religiosity about the way they go to art, I think, to galleries, to concerts, to music, to film, mm. because I think they're seeking satisfaction for an appetite which they would once have taken to church or prayer. Mm-hmm. But we yeah. don't do that now because it's not, it's not good. It's not, no one takes it seriously. No, and it's not so... Um standard is it it's not it's not something that everyone does as a matter of course no and, and it really and it's happened very quickly I mean, it's interesting mm. i was thinking about I was listening to war requiem the other day and i was in coventry i actually had been in coventry cathedral facebook reminder popped up and i thought you know when coventry cathedral was reconsecrated in 60 whenever it was you know you could turn out britain to write the music you could turn out sutherland to do an enormous tapestry you could turn out Spence to design the building and Epstein to do the sculpture. I mean, there was just, you, you could feel this extraordinary team of artists, you know, the most preeminent in their fields in their day. And of course, not all of them uh, having grown up in the Anglican tradition, but all of them were kind of familiar enough with it to know what they were doing. I was thinking if we reconsecrated a cathedral today, which would be an act of extraordinary recklessness, who would we get to do it? Mm. Who would be uh, enough who would be f- familiar enough with the shape and content of what we do to confidently add to that project? Mm. I don't know. I immediately mm. think of James Macmillan, of course, although mm. James is a Roman Catholic, but he, no one, I think, no musician when working today understands Christianity better than him. Uh, absolutely so. Yeah. And then there are some noble exceptions in writing too. But mm-hmm. yeah. During that period of exploration, when you were... Uh, pop star or a rather accidental pop star the way you describe it oh hopeless pop star i I, I just i was just very fortunate that i threw in my lot with a spectacularly talented Mm. and original person jimmy somerville Mm. so i hitched my wagon to him and it was his brilliance that sort of dragged me into that world to which i was phenomenally ill-suited my my nephew oliver who is 18 he's sort of just kind of aware of the backstory of the adults in his life and uh, he seems nonplussed that I was in a band, so in the end I had to show him a video we'd made, and he watched it, and at the end of it he said, you know, even then you can tell there's a vicar struggling to get out. So <laughs> um, I think it, uh, how I ended up in pop music um, was very strange, really, haphazard. Indeed, but great great results. I mean, I, I, I'm going to put my cards on the table. I was a massive fan of the Communards, and I bought oh. both of the albums, and oh, I brilliant. danced to them in my living room as a sort of slightly awkward teenager and um listen to them both again sort of in advance of us having this conversation and oops again it's that portal theory i, re- I remembered every single track you know really? to right to my bones well, um, i've forgotten every single thing, so i had to do the twitter listening tim burgess from charlotte and Sussex's twitter listening party it's been a lockdown project where you all sit around on Twitter and play an album at the same time and somebody made the album sort of tweets about it which was me in this case so i had to listen to one of our albums, which mm. I hadn't listened to for literally decades. Gosh. And it was just much better than I thought it was. I sort of 
I, I was sort of surprised actually at how much interest there was in it. I mean, not I flatter myself, I think that's down to me. Jimmy, I always find a sort of thrilling singer to listen mm. to. But also, we've been working with a band for about two years by that time, and you can just tell that lots of people in the band were proper, really, really, really proper musicians. And you can just tell it's got mm. the virtues of an ensemble that's worked together a lot. Oh, it does, and it's got the 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 range and eclecticism in both albums. I think is what what which I I probably didn't appreciate. It was just oh, these are great songs, you know, when I was fourteen, fifteen, or whatever. But actually, listen, you know, it's on the the first album. You've got jazz tinged songs, classically tinged songs, I'd say, and as well as what became disco classics, and I know yeah. where some of were covers. But also in the second album, I mean, Lovers and Friends is one of the most moving songs, and it it's got real earworm for me now. It's I can hear it in my head now because I've been listening yeah. to it again. I loved that song. I mean, mm. I, I'm, I, it's one of the few songs where I wrote the words as well as mm. the um, as well as the t- as well as the music. Um, and you can tell it's someone who's done his grade five theory. I think it's oh. not very well. <laughs> oh for sure and one of the songs is called C minor there's an actual key sort of reference to it <laughs> well that's interesting because it was I was very into C minor at the time mm. I'd been listening to a lot of the Beethoven C minor piano concerto which I don't particularly listen to now but I love that when you kind of get a key you know when mm. you sort of start and I think also because I started off as a pianist and a fiddle player and then when I went into saxophone I started listening to flat keys more because you do because it's a B flat instrument and uh, so I just noticed that more things set in keys with flats turned up. I don't know why. It's, yeah, I think it's inexplicable that that what what draws you to a key and what. Um, See, my yeah. default is is sharp keys. So, oh really? Oh yeah, I'm an E minor, B minor man. I really am. B but, minor, interesting. Oh yeah, I love B minor. Is that because it's nice to play on the piano? This or is it? It's probably slightly to do with laziness on my part. So if things fit comfortably under the hand, yes, um, I might sort of just like them for that. But I know there's something about the colour of B minor that hmm. I really like. That I, I found I was looking at, at a particular period of history in, of Britain's life, and he he was obsessed with D minor at one stage when he was living in America. There's about five pieces. He can't seem to kind of. He, he just keeps getting sucked back into it. It's like a kind so of it, vortex. It, it seems rather remote from the keys I associate. I mm. suppose I think of B flat because Peter Grimes is just so B flat, mm-hmm. isn't it? I know. Yeah. No, that was that was his go-to for for a while, and he clearly he clearly moved on. Um, just thinking of lovers and friends. Was that one of the songs that was dedicated to um, Mark Ashton? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, the, 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 there was a song called For a Friend, which was sort of the one we wrote immediately in response to Mark together. Mm. Um, yeah, Mark was this extraordinary person who was a very close friend of both of ours. He was an activist, but the jolliest activist you ever saw. There was nothing puritan about Mark at all. He was really good fun, really naughty. Came from Northern Ireland, and he'd grown up in a world of you know sectarianism and the troubles and everything. But he had this extraordinary humanity, and he was able to... He could be very, very confrontational and very, very uncompromising and indignant and angry sometimes, but he never did so in a way which made you feel that he was ever going to be less than fully, to fully recognise the dignity of people. He was just a remarkable mm. guy. Mm. And it, lots of people who knew him, our lives were changed by that. He was, he's, he was General Secretary of the Young Communist League, he was involved in Red Wedge. 
And he's one of the founders of Lesbians and Gays Support the Miners, mm. the unlikeliest alliance in the history of left activism, but it was there in the 80s during the miners' strike when a group of us gay men and lesbians living in London adopted a, um, a pit village in South Wales in Device, and it formed friendships which are still current today. I spoke one of the miners' wives, um, who was uh, you know, buttering sandwiches in the miners' uh, club, became a Labour MP and mm. uh, we talked only the other day actually it was lovely to hear from her that, that's the um, that wonderful film Pride uh, celebrates yeah. that story to the point where I mean I, I, I remember watching it and just being in floods of tears throughout most of it but it right at the end when the miners actually come on the Pride march is a bit where you think this can't possibly have happened it's funny, I went to see it with my partner, my late partner, David, who's 15 years younger than me. And uh, we went to the, see a screening of it because I'm one of the people who Stephen Beresford, who's a very brilliant writer who wrote the script, talked to. And at the end of it, David said, I said, what do you think? They said, what did happen to it? I said, no, it really, really did happen. Mm. He said, did it? It just seems so unlikely. But it did happen. And one of the reasons it happened was because Mark Ashton had this galvanising effect on mm. people. And he would—he was fearless, and he was clever. And then he—he he died mm. when he was 26. He got—he was the first of our circle to die of AIDS, and he—he he just had a cough. I remember we went to—we'd been to Wapping, to the picket line when Rupert Murdoch moved the print from Fleet Street to Wapping, and Mark would never miss a picket, and so off we went. And he came back to mine, and he had this cough. He said he didn't feel very well. The next thing I heard, he was in hospital, and I went to see him. And he didn't look very well. And then we had to go to Spain to do the Spanish Top of the Pops. And just before we went on stage, so a friend called us to say that he'd died. And it was just mm. devastating. Yeah. Yes, and that whole that whole period obviously being been dramatised and and remembered through this recent uh, It's a Sin series is is shocking to look back on that isn't it and, and to have been in in that and lost so many people i can't imagine what that must have been like well, it's it's yeah i mean it, for everyone anyone who went through that we are you know we share that experience and it was just incredibly it was just so awful mm-hmm. and 30 years on <coughs> it's just beginning to turn up in books and films and plays and i think because it takes 30 years maybe for experience like that to cook to mm-hmm. a point where you can say something about it that doesn't seem entirely kind of facetious or disrespectful or comic strip. Mm. And credit to Russell T Davies for getting <coughs> uh, into five hours of primetime television, mm. something which did sort of tell the story, although there were, you know, obviously of course it was compressed and it was um, a redaction. But it, I knew those people, every character in that story, mm. I knew a version of. I knew the places, I knew the music, I knew where they went, I knew what it felt like. I've just written a novel which is set in 1988. Mm. And you have the fun part of just kind of going on the internet and seeing what was in the culture then, so you can cite it. But that's nothing, you know, that's, that's just like walking around an antique shop. What you have to do is recapture what it felt like. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Russell T Davis does that brilliantly. Yeah, very brilliantly. Um, and, and really struck by by in your book obviously you, you cover that that period as well very intensely but also and you've, you've touched on it with the, with the minor strike as well the political activism around just being gay full stop and the sort of solidarity with other social movements and yeah. a kind of um 
needs that something needs to change you know we cannot be treated like this and there was obviously a horrible lot of homophobia in the initial well it went on for some time didn't it that the attitudes towards people with hiv and yeah. being gay in that period must have been uh allied with being political it sort well, of came it with the territory mm-hmm. yeah i mean I, I kind of um see i'm i'm, I'm a english public school boy ex-chorister my kind of default position is actually quite conservative, small c. But my convictions are all radical, and that's because of being gay, actually. And uh, I was at school, and then as sort of um, sexuality began to form, the handsomest boy in the school, who became my best friend, still is my best friend, um, read The Guardian. And so that was really my conversion to left-wing politics, was simply because Matthew, who I adored, and still do, um, read The Guardian. So that was why that happened. Um, but then I think I began to, as you kind of put your life together as an adult and step into the world, it just seemed to be make a lot of sense to to look at if you were gay and you were suffering as a consequence of prejudice and bigotry and unfairness, to find common cause with other people mm-hmm. who were experiencing prejudice and bigotry and unfairness. So naturally the sort of um, struggles of... BAME people, we didn't call it that then, and the women's movement was very powerful, and that was very closely allied to, in a way, the kind of ultimate power politics, which is economic. Mm -hmm. So, on the left, especially on the on the radical left, as we were, um, there was this sort of rainbow alliance, as we called it then, where lots of people who all had a a beef with the status quo found and made common cause. Mm In fact, of course, it wasn't that simple, but we were 18 and life was kind of simple when you're 18 in a way. But um, it was the most energising and inspiring time of my life. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive. Um, and it uh, it really did... It's interesting, some people think, oh, how can you go from being a radical gay activist in the 80s to being a vicar in the you know, 2021? And, Part of the reason is is that I learned what community is in those years. Mm. I really learned what it means to be part of a community and how you, and a community that's not just based on sort of tribe or place, but that's based on convictions. Because if you're switched onto that, then all of a sudden the church uh, opens up to you, or can do. And also you're willing to, and you, you've in fact kind of embodied a um, an embrace of different ways of being that actually is kind of the point isn't it so it's not just about tolerating people because tolerance can be a kind of double-edged word can't it so it's like oh well i'll put up with you or tolerate you yeah. actually it should be more i'm i'm prepared to, you know i'm, I'm willing I respect your equal to dignity. Pre- That's precisely I mean. yeah i mean yeah. i think it's interesting isn't it how i was in bristol in the brief gap between lockdowns i have a friend of mine who's a bristol university a student there and I was doing a job and I went to see him and I walked past the plinth where the statue of Edward Colston stood and I just thought a lot about I've I mean, one of the things I've done in lockdown is I've been very affected by the Black Lives Matter movement mm. because you know I've been I joined Rock Against Racism in 1977 and I've always been absolutely um, behind uh, equality for for ethnic minorities and everything and then I realised in all my sort of 35 40 years of activism why is there still a statue of a trader in the heart of a multicultural city in Britain in 2020? It's just mm. it's an awful thing. And I thought, well, 
maybe I haven't really. I mean, I've played lip service to this, but what have I actually done about it? Well, you know, I've kind of voted appropriately and I've ticked the boxes and I've signed the petitions. What have I actually done? Am I actually, what have I actually done about the sort of privilege that came by virtue of my middle class white, um, well provided for background? And I read David Olashoga's book, Black and British, which mm. I'd highly recommend. And it just made me realise that it is not simply about lip service and that it's incumbent for people like me who enjoy what I enjoy to think about what I'm prepared to give up in order to create a world which is fairer, in which the dignity of other people is equally respected. And mm-hmm. that's, again, that's something which for someone who you know, responds to the call of Christ in the gospel, uh, you know, that's familiar, you get a feeling of deja vu about that. The, the other thing, of course, Lucy, is that the struggles, the civil rights struggles in America in the 60s, the soundtrack to that was popular music. Mm. It was dance halls, it was dance floors, it was bars, it was clubs, it was the urban scene. And I've always loved uh, Motown, and Motown, you know, obviously it's obvious connections to the gospel tradition. Um, and I've always loved the way that popular music gets people onto the dance floor and into the streets, dancing in the streets, Martha Vandellas were my favourite songs. And so that was the thing that kind of hauled me out of the sort of conservatoire concert hall um, world of, of classical mm. music. Although, you know, I've always liked the kind of more revolutionary parts of the repertoire of Wagner is one of my kind of absolute I adore Wagner. So, uh, yes, yeah, so you can, again, a, a sort of embrace of wide cultural range of references, which includes Wagner and disco. Yeah, actually, I've never found that, I've never found that peculiar. No, me either. <laughs> <laughs> just, just one sort of final question, really, which is about how you, well, looking at, looking at your CV, as we, as we talked to you at the beginning, but also how much you do, how do you manage to, to do it all and, and balance it all with the high-profile uh, nature of your other work out, outside being a, a parish priest? Well, by neglecting important things and disappointing people, really. So um, I do. I have more to do than I have the means to do it with. You see what I mean? So I, like every parish priest I know, I'm constantly just trying to kind of uh, do the best I can with the available resources, and that does mean um, the best you can do is sometimes not enough, and that's just something you have to live with. And also, it's made me rely much more on my parishioners, who are wonderful and um, and understanding and incredibly supportive, and much better at lots of things than I am. So. Um, I grew up in a church where you know the vicar was the sort of unassailable authority, and I don't work in a church like that now, and I'm kind of glad of it. It's a much more um, cooperative environment, so that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for everything else, well, I mean, I've always liked to do as much as I possibly can because I have. I always think you should say yes unless you absolutely have to say no. You know, my definition of what what you should say no to is perhaps different from others, but nevertheless. Um, but I just worked incredibly. Also, I, I like work, so I, you know, one reason I get up early is because I get more done. But I, I've lockdown has made me rethink that actually, and I've didn't realise quite how much I sacrificed in order to achieve the output that I have achieved, and I'm not going to do that anymore. I've decided. It's mm. not, I don't think it's good for me. So making a choice to, to sort of pull do back. Yeah. yeah. Do less. Yeah. You know, there's a bit at the height of the first lockdown when everything was closed 
and uh, I mean I was kept myself busy I wrote two books and stuff but I wasn't rushing around everywhere because I couldn't and I sat in the back garden in that beautiful beautiful spring with the mm. dogs and I my David had just died just before Christmas so I was in a oh. mess anyway and it was really good it was really good for me to do that yes that lockdown has had sort of well it's had a devastating and, and awful effects on lots of people but there has been a sort of strain of people reassessing their priorities hasn't there I think certainly true as for a result me. yeah but then of course I have the luxury to be able to do it yeah. in my yeah. uh, walled garden in the vicarage which I've still paid a half stipend and still working mm-hmm. uh, I, th- I just kind of really my I, I feel very devastated really about how tough this year has been for musicians in particular, how hard it's been, actors and musicians and performers who need to, you know, concert halls and venues and festivals and things like that where people get together in order to work and I know lots of musicians who've really, really struggled and have been you know, driving vans and working in supermarkets to do what you have to do, of course, like everybody else. But I just can't wait for a time when people are able to come back together and, and make music and hear music. Yes. Yes, in the, in the actual physical space, absolutely. Um, That's the thing. Is there's no subject. I, I, did, I was at the last night of the proms. I was a talking head at the last night of the proms. Yes. I sat in this vast, you know, the Albert Hall, which was all but empty of people, and heard music, and mm. it was so moving. I I actually couldn't speak for a bit, which is not great when you've been hired to speak. But anyway, because it, I was just so moved by hearing, and it's that thing, is it? It's not. It's not. It's being in the same place at the same time as the people making it. Air temperature pressure um the mood of the crowd that sort of thing there's no substitute for that well before too long i'm sure um if 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 etc <laughs> as we've hope, all been saying I a hope, lot hope, hope, yeah. <laughs> um well just as as we're coming to the end and i and i really appreciate you um being part of this podcast series for saying such insightful things about music apart from anything else but also um, I would just like to acknowledge this is the second time we're having this conversation <laughs> because we had one on Friday afternoon and the technical gremlins got to the process and I don't know what happened but but it's it's very kind of you to, to do this that we've had a completely different conversation yeah. say. <laughs> two opportunities to speak about myself how lovely that's <laughs> Well, I'm very happy to help. It's been Thank a joy you. to uh, to be part of it. But one thing that um, we included last time, and I'd like love to be able to include, is is your musical choices for our playlist, and I'll contribute a couple as well. Um, just so what you've been what you've been listening to lately that you'd like to share. Well, I've been listening to. I've, one of the things I've done in lockdown is I've um, learned the accordion, um, which would make some people head for the exit I know but I've always loved the instrument and a parishioner of mine died and uh, anyway I ended up with his accordion and so I've taken the opportunity to learn it and I've really enjoyed it there's a wonderful accordion player called Richard Galliano Hmm. who's a a French um, player wonderful musician so I would recommend listening to Richard Galliano who will take your breath away with his musicality and virtuosity fabulous Um, I'll tell you something and it was because of the conversation we had on Friday Lucy I went I spent the evening listening to Britain's variations on the theme of Frank Bridge, which I hadn't heard in years, and, I, and it's just so wonderful. I mm. loved it. Oh, well, how nice. How nice to include that. Um, 
Well, I'm going to include uh, a communards track <laughs> because <laughs> because I've been so much enjoying listening to the music again. And You Are My World um, was one of my favourites when I was a teenager. And I used to try and play the, the intro on the piano myself. Um, and so I would love to include that. Oh, thank you. I like that. Um, and also, um, I heard your private passions interview um, again in preparation for, for these conversations. And you said that your dogs like to listen to Poulenc's piano music. Oh, they adore it, yeah. Which I think shows the, the dogs of great taste. I adore Poulenc. He was Me the subject too. of my PhD and, I, and I'm in love with him. So I will include the novelette in E, e minor. There you oh, are. Also a great key yeah. <laughs> um, for your dogs um, and for the playlist. I'm going to... If I get time this afternoon, I'm going to bash my way through um, the Sfaida Nazelle, I think. Oh, I did one of those for my grade eight um, piano. Uh, oh, so that's you? a great suite. Not the way I play it, but I'll well, give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Pleasure. Part two, um, <laughs> Reverend Richard Coles for joining me on podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lucy.